the last couple of weeks, we've been in a series called Find Wisdom, Find Life, where we're looking at the book of Proverbs. And this week, we're looking at chapters 13 through 19 with one question in mind. And it's a big one. It's one that you've all thought about at one point or another. It's this. How do I find God's will for my life? How do I find God's will for my life? And the reason it makes sense to do this during a study of Proverbs is because Proverbs was written to give us wisdom so that we might understand the truth about God, the truth about ourselves, and the truth about life. The book of Proverbs is meant to push us, to provoke us, to confront us. It challenges us to consider if what we believe is worth believing in. Is it based in fact and truth, or is it based in something else? And the only way that Proverbs can do what it was meant to do in our lives is if we are willing to slow down and listen. Now, notice I didn't use the word hear. I used the word listen, because how many of you know there is a difference between hearing and listening? Feels like more ladies' hands are in the air right now. In fact, our English... Definitions do a good job of making this distinction. Hearing is defined as the passive intake of sound, whereas listening is defined as working to comprehend with thoughtful attention. For us to experience all that Proverbs has to offer, we will have to slow down and listen. We will have to be willing to reflect on just how much our lives align with the wisdom that we find in Proverbs. It's kind of like this. How many of you would say that you have a sweet tooth? Go ahead. Your dentist didn't sit beside you. All right, so here's what what I want you to do then. Here and across all our campuses and online in the chat, on the count of three, I want you to shout back to me and shout it what your sweet tooth craves when it kicks in. You ready? One, two, three. Well, that's a lot of things. (laughs) How many of you are surprised at your neighbor's sweet tooth? We all have a different kind of sweet tooth, right? Some of us, we crave things like this, like cotton candy. Anybody like that? Some of us, we like things like marshmallows. Like who doesn't love a good s'more, right? Some of us like things like circus peanuts. Now, just because I need to know. Raise your hand if you like circus peanuts. Okay, look around. These are the people who need serious psychological help. Because these are disgusting. There's no, not even an expiration date on this. Like, if there were, it would just say when Jesus comes back. If you look at the ingredients, it just says yes. These are awful. Now, these... These are the kind of sweets that kind of just dissolve in your mouth almost immediately, right? But then there are other kinds of sweets that take a bit more time. Like you got to take your time with Jolly Ranchers, right? And here's the deal. Proverbs is not the cotton candy of Scripture. Proverbs is not the marshmallows of Scripture. Proverbs is definitely not the circus peanuts of Scripture. Proverbs is more like the hard candy of Scripture. 
It's very sweet, but you have to take your time with it to really experience it. So if we want to benefit from the wisdom that's found in the Proverbs, then we will have to slow down and think about how our lives align with that wisdom. And if we'll do that, then we can learn something about finding God's will for our lives. And when we talk about finding God's will for our lives, what we're really talking about is guidance. We want guidance. We want God to give us his guidance in a particular area of our lives, which is great. But we've got to understand three things. First, there's a price for guidance. Second, there's a pursuit of guidance. And then there's also a purpose of guidance. And that's our outline for today. So let's look at that first one, the price of guidance. Now, we all know that anything worthwhile has a price, right? And, and guidance is no different. There is a price we must be willing to pay if we want God's guidance. And one idea that is woven throughout the entire book of Proverbs is something called the fear of the Lord. We see it for the first time in chapter one. It says this, 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And if you're following along with our reading plan, you saw it this week in chapter 14. It says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. And again in chapter 19, the fear of the Lord leads to life, bringing security and protection from harm. Now, the fear of the Lord, it's a strange phrase for us, but it was a common expression in ancient Hebrew culture. It was used to remind people of God's bigness. The best translation that we have in our English language is the word awe, A-W-E. To fear the Lord meant to recognize the infinite power and glory of God. And there's no way to recognize the greatness of God without also recognizing our own smallness. That's why David wrote this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? The reason the fear of the Lord was such a common phrase then was because pride was such a problem. And that's no different today, is it? Pride and self-sovereignty ultimately destroy us because they keep us from a relationship with God. In the New Testament, there's a story about a rich young ruler who approached Jesus with a question. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responded to him saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He was trying to help the man understand just exactly who he was speaking to. But the man didn't get it. So Jesus went on to spell out for him just exactly how good someone would have to be to inherit eternal life. He said, you know the commands. Do those. And the man said, well, I've done all of those since I was a young boy. Jesus said, yes. But there's still one thing you're clinging to. One thing you want more than you want God. Your wealth. Let go of that. Loosen your grip on that and come follow me. 
And the text tells us that the man went away sad because he knew that was the one thing he wasn't willing to let go of. Then Jesus looked to the crowd and he said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we read this and we think, cool story about how important it is that we put God first in our lives. And that's true. But there's a context here that can be easily lost on us. To us, saying something is easier than a camel passing through the eye of a needle means that thing just must be impossible, right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. You see, the Jewish people believed that God's actual presence dwelled in the temple in Jerusalem. And around the city of Jerusalem, there were many gates people used to go in and out of the city. There were things like the, there was the lion's gate, which was flanked by two carved statues of lions. There was the sheep's gate, which was the gate the sheep passed in and out of. There was the golden gate, which is the gate Jesus would use to go to San Francisco. (laughs) That is the gate that Jesus used. The very last time he entered Jerusalem before he was crucified. And then there was one other. The eye of the needle gate. Now this one was a very unique gate. This gate was only used when all at nighttime when all of the other gates around the city were locked. The thought was that if enemies tried to attack at night, every other gate would be locked, forcing the enemies to go through the eye of the needle gate, which was the smallest gate, meaning they would have to come through single file, making it easier for the guards to pick them off one by one as they came into the city. It was just large enough for you to fit through with your family, maybe a few small animals if you were granted passage in the city. But the only way for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle gate was for that animal to bow very low, uncomfortably low. That was the only way. And that's what Jesus is conveying with this passage. He's saying that the only way for us to come into the presence of the living God is for us to bow. The only way for us to have a relationship with God is through humility. If we want to be wise, if we want the guidance that God offers, then we must learn to bow. There is simply no other way to approach him. That is the price of guidance. The reason our culture struggles to find humility towards God is because it has lost sight of the greatness of God. If we could only learn again to see God as he is, not as we have modified him to be, but as he is. Even the philosopher Voltaire, who was a critic of Christianity, he understood this and once wrote, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. And ever since then, man has been trying to repay the favor. Even the Bible struggles to capture all that God is. It took more than 31,000 verses to adequately paint the picture. And the best comparison the writers could give us was fire. 
In Exodus 3, Moses approached a bush that was on fire. And God told him to stop. Because the place where he was standing was holy ground. The fire was God's presence. What's interesting about this fire is that it did not consume the bush. Now, we understand fire. We know that in order for a fire to burn, it has to consume something. It needs a fuel source. But not this fire. This fire burned without any need for a source. Because God himself was the source. And what an interesting picture this is. Fire is both immeasurably helpful and frighteningly dangerous. It can provide all that we need for life. Food. Water. Safety, protection, light, warmth. And at the same time, it consumes everything it encounters until nothing remains. Now, what great respect is due to something that, both, that has both the power to give us life and yet consume us completely. That is the God we serve. Here's the reality. We will all humble ourselves before God. We will either do it now or we will do it when he comes again. Because there is no other way to respond to the God who is above everything else. If we want the wisdom and guidance of God, then we will have to pay the price. And the price of guidance is exactly as the Proverbs say, the fear of the Lord. We must learn to humble and bow before him, recognizing that his wisdom is above all earthly wisdom. So if that's the price of guidance, then what's the pursuit of guidance? How do we actually pursue guidance in our lives? Well, there's another thread that runs throughout the book of Proverbs, and it's the idea of the wise and the foolish. And in this week's readings, you read things like whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. And we know this is true because we know that all relationships, there's not one relationship that isn't, that's, that's not neutral. Each one is either making us better or it's making us worse, right? But how do you know who's wise and who's a fool? Some of you are thinking, oh, I know. I know. Don't look at your neighbor. Look at me. Chapter 14 starts to explain it to us. It says the wise fear the Lord and shun evil, but a fool is hot headed and yet feels secure. That word for hot headed in Hebrew is abar and it means arrogant. But in context, it was a military word used to describe marching ahead of the orders that were given to you. Literally, it meant to put yourself ahead of the one who commands you. Which for anyone who has been in the military, they understand just how foolish that would be. Because they know the value of following orders. They know that orders are given for a specific reason. And when they're not followed, people get hurt. So they have learned to trust that the one who is giving the orders has information about the battlefield. That they don't have. 
which is sadly a perfect description of the culture we live in today, isn't it? Our culture has taken such a high opinion of its own perspectives that it has marched ahead of actual truth into a space where everyone can have their own version of truth, a version of truth that's not based, in fact, in reality. It's based in feelings. And believe it or not, Proverbs speaks to the cultural moment that we're in right now. Chapter 14, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Here, Proverbs is challenging us to remember that the solutions and strategies we come up with in our own minds have the potential to be destructive. Because they're very often, more often than we would ever care to admit, tainted with self-interest. It's a warning against the danger of thinking too much of ourselves, too much of our own perspectives. And all of this builds towards another theme in Proverbs, which is that true wisdom can be very hard to find on our own. Chapter 15 says, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. And many of us would say that we believe in this. We believe in the idea of seeking wise counsel. But oftentimes, that's not how we live our lives. I know this because when people come to me for counseling and they share with me some of the worst decisions they've ever made in their lives, I ask them the question, who else knows? And you know what they say. Nobody. You're the first person I've ever told. Can you imagine how things might be different if they had just told one person, if they had just sought the counsel of one wise person before making that decision? So we can say that we believe in seeking wise counsel, but we have to remember that our lives will always reveal what we actually believe. Now, let me explain this with a story. I know that. You would all agree that kids have a variety of experiences when they're learning to swim. Some are immediately comfortable with it, and some are paralyzed by it. And I remember when we were teaching our kids to swim, they weren't paralyzed by it, but they were cautious and calculated. And unlike some of the pastors here at the church, we did not try to set any records on how many children we could have. Dana and I, we only have two. That's it. But they are both redheads. And we have a theory about this. That one fiery, stubborn redhead is like three regular kids. <laughs> so we feel like we're keeping up. But when we were teaching our kids to swim, they were cautious. They were calculated. In fact, I should tell you, we, we nicknamed our, our youngest, Emma, Hot Lava, just to give you a picture, or Little Lava, because if you stand in her way of anything she wants, she will just melt you down with sass or sweetness, whatever's required. <laughs> She's got them both. But as we were teaching them to swim, we would get them all lathered up in sunscreen. We'd put floaties on them. We did everything we could think of to protect them, but they were still cautious about jumping in the water until I got in the water. And then with me in the water, reaching towards them, 
they found the courage to jump in over and over and over again. You see how our kids lived in those different moments revealed what they believed before I got in the water. They lived one way, cautious, timid, standing on the edge. But after I got in the water, they lived very differently. They were bold and daring. And it wasn't because they, be, they suddenly became confident in their ability to swim. It was that they were confident in my ability to catch them. Incidentally, this is a perfect description of faith. It's not that we suddenly become confident in our ability to follow Jesus. It's that we finally become confident in his ability to lead us. The challenges for us came later when our kids began to think they could jump in any body of water anytime they wanted with or without our help. And I remember when Emma was about two, we were at a young life camp where her brother, she was watching him go down. He was about six, this huge slide into a lake. And of course, she wanted to do everything that her older brother did. So we thought, well, we could go down with her. We got a little mini life jacket and we put it on her. And the idea was Matt would go down first, and so he did, and he's cheering and laughing, having a ball. And then I went down, and I was going to stay in the water so that I could help Dana when she came down with Emma. You need to know that some of Emma's, little Lava's, favorite words when she was a child were, by myself, by myself, said it all the time. And so from the top of the slide, you also need to know that doesn't change when they get older. Don't say I didn't warn you. But from the top of the slide, Dana was trying to get Emma situated and Emma's trying to wiggle out of her grasp saying, by myself, mama, by myself. And somehow, probably because she was all greased up with sunscreen, she got loose and took off down the slide by herself. And I could see Dana at the top of the slide. This was not the plan. But I'm in the Emma's flying down this huge slide and I'm in the water, treading water, waiting to catch her. And she flies off the end and starts skipping like a butterball turkey across the water. I'm thinking she's going to take my head off. But I managed to stop her. All these kids on the bank are cheering. She comes up coughing and spitting up water and choking. And she looks at me with this look of panic in her face and says, again, daddy, again. Now, the reason I share that with you is to point out a couple of very important things. First, by myself is a terrible life strategy. It's why the writer of Proverbs tells us, be not wise in your own eyes. And to listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom. And the second thing is this. It's a reminder that our mouths may tell others what we believe, but our lives will always show them what we believe. If we want to know what we believe, all we ever have to do is look at the way we are living. That is the evidence of what we believe. And I want all of us to hear this because it's true for every single one of us. Every single one of us is a living proverb to the world around us. 
We can either trust that they are true through our obedience, or we can prove that they are true through our disobedience. So what do the Proverbs have to teach us about the pursuit of wisdom and guidance? Well, two things. We rarely find wisdom on our own. That's the first. And the second is that wisdom is usually found in the company of wise people. That's the second. So now that we understand the price of guidance and we understand how to pursue guidance, let's talk for a minute about the purpose of guidance. Because most of us will think this one's obvious. The purpose of guidance is guidance, right? We want to know what decisions we should make, which way we should go. We want to know what God's will is for our lives and how we can get there. But what if I told you that's not the purpose of guidance? At least not in the way we think. When Solomon kicks off the book of Proverbs, he tells us in chapter one, let the wise listen to these Proverbs and become even wiser. Let those with understanding receive guidance. So the Proverbs were meant to help us receive guidance from the Lord. But what does that look like? Well, the Hebrew word here for guidance literally means rope. And it was most commonly used as a nautical term, which creates an important picture for you and me. It describes how sailors would use rope to raise the sails so that they could allow the wind to move them in an intended direction. Because without the sails, they would just float along wherever the current was going. And imagine what that would look like for us. Imagine if we were just floating along in whatever direction the culture was moving. We don't really have to imagine it, do we? We see it all the time. A few verses later, Solomon then writes, wisdom shouts in the streets. She cries aloud in the public squares. She calls out to the crowds along the main street to those gathered in front of the city gate. What he's telling us in this proverb is that God's guidance is available all the time, but it is our job to raise the sail. It is our job to raise that sail so he can move us in a direction that he wants us to go. So how do we do that? Well, let me share and close with one more story. One of my favorite places to go is Costa Rica. It's, it's warm. The waves are good. It's not that far away. And there's a, there's, whenever I go there, there's a spectrum of how nice the vacation is going to be. If I'm going with Dana, we're going to stay in a nicer place. We're going to rent a nicer car. There's going to be amenities because that's how Dana likes to roll. If I go with my surf buddies, we're going to live like dirt bags. Because all we care about is the surfing. And a few years ago, on one of those trips with my guy friends, we had been surfing all morning and we decided we needed to make a grocery run in the afternoon. And we were in a pretty remote place where none of the mapping apps were very reliable. So we were more or less just kind of using the force to find the market. And, and you need to know, too, the, the roads down there are more like paths. They're just littered with potholes from the rainy season just dips and ditches everywhere. And so we were coming around this curve, hoping we were going in the right direction. And we see this guy, this local guy carrying a surfboard, walking along the path. 
And we recognized him because he'd been surfing the same spot we were in that morning. So as we get close to him, my friend who's driving, he, he rolls down the window and tries to ask him how to get to the market. Now, we're speaking broken Spanish. He's speaking broken English. So it's more like just a lot of pointing and nodding going on. And then the guy says to both of us, he said, I go. And we realize he's asking us for a ride. Which in the States, this probably wouldn't happen because none of us trust each other. But he, we were driving this big SUV and he could see there was plenty of room in the back. So he looks at the guy and my friend looks at me and then he goes. And I'm thinking, what's this? Like, this is this feels like how lots of Netflix documentaries get started right here. This feels like a bad play. But he hops out, walks around the back, helps the guy put the surfboard in the back. And then as they're coming back around the driver's side, I'm still sitting in the front passenger seat. I hear the guy go, I drive. And I'm thinking, that's just silly. You know, who would do that? Here we are in the middle of nowhere. We're certain we put this relative stranger in our car. We're definitely not letting him drive. But I hear my friend go, see. First word of Spanish he spoke. I'm thinking, see, see what? Before I know it, he's in the front seat, shuts the door, looks at me, and he goes, we go. I'm thinking, we go where? This is bad. This is a terrible, terrible plan. I'm pretty sure your name's not on the rental car agreement. But he starts driving. He knows exactly where he's going. And he's it, more than that, he knows exactly how to avoid every dip and pothole. It was the smoothest ride we had the whole trip. About seven minutes later, we were at the market, but not the market we were trying to find. We found an even better market. And he hops out, grabs his surfboard, thanks us and walks on. It worked out great, but I don't recommend this for anybody ever. <laughs> it's a terrible plan. But the reason I share it with you is because this is how a lot of us approach guidance. When we get a little lost, when we get a little bit turned around, we pull over. We call that prayer. That's when we ask God to help us go where we want to go. And while God could just give us the guidance we want, he offers to go with us. And that makes us a little uncomfortable. And while God could just offer to go with us, he also asks to drive. And that makes us really uncomfortable. Because what if he takes us somewhere we don't want to go? Here's the question I want us all to consider. What if figuring out what God wants for our lives has less to do with finding guidance and more to do with finding the guide. You see, we approach God wanting answers to our questions. Where should I go? What should I do? Who should I date? Who should I marry? What do I do about my career? And a hundred other valid questions. And we're right to ask God because he is infinitely wise. But we need to know that sometimes, maybe even many times, most times, the answers to those questions are not what we need the most because the answers themselves can never satisfy us deeply. 
during a time in his life when he was very confused about some important matters. C.S. Lewis found himself frustrated that despite much prayer, much pleading, God had not given him any guidance. And after several weeks of this, pleading with God for answers, he noticed something strange began to happen. His frustration was fading. His anxiety was lifting. Even though he still had no answers to his questions, his fear was beginning to break. And after reflecting on this, he wrote, I know, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are the answer. And before your face, my questions die away. He had learned that the guide was far more valuable to him than the guidance. And that's the point. What if the purpose of seeking guidance is more about learning to seek the guide? So there is a price to be paid for guidance. It's in learning to bow in humility. And there is a way to pursue guidance. It's in seeking wise counsel. And there is an ultimate purpose in needing guidance. It is in finding the guide himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. That even though we come to you wanting guidance. In your wisdom, you give us yourself. You give us that which will satisfy us completely. So I pray, Father, that you teach us to pull down heaven. That we might know you more. And the comfort of having you lead us wherever it is you want us to go. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.